Good evening. You're very welcome to this edition of Ireland's Generation X series that focuses on Irish writers born between 1965 and 1985. We're delighted, as always, to present the series in partnership with the Keolochton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Simon O'Connor. I'm the director here at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, located in Dublin St. Stephen's Green. And I'm delighted to let you know that we will be back open on Friday, the 14th of May. We're thrilled um, to be reopening with a brand new exhibition about picture book author Chris Houghton. And we can't wait to see you in our exhibitions and gardens again. And all of us here uh, at the museum are, of course, looking forward to having lovely coffees from the Commons Cafe, who will also reopen for takeaway on the same day. This evening, we're joined once again by Professor Barry McRae, a novelist and a scholar of comparative literature, who will be in conversation with Katrina Lally, author of the celebrated novel Eggshells and recipient of the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature in 2018. I'm told that Katrina's second novel will be published by New Island this year, so that's one to look forward to. And before I go, I'd like to let you know about another event this week. Tomorrow, Thursday, I'll be hosting my monthly director's book club at 5pm, which is free for Molly members. And this week we're reading a classic, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, And I'm delighted that Nicholas Daly, Professor of Modern English and American Literature uh, in UCD, will be joining me for the event. Uh, Finally, if you do enjoy tonight's programme, I'd encourage you to buy Molly membership for yourself or a friend. It really is the best way to support the museum and its programming. You can save 25% on membership with the discount Eggshells, all in capitals, uh, this evening. And that's valid today, only today. So visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. And we'll put that information into the chat as well this evening. With that, I hope you enjoy uh, the evening. Looking forward to seeing you all soon in the museum. And I'll hand you over to Professor Barry McRae and Katrina Lally. Thank you, Simon. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Benedict and Laura from Mali and my colleague, Catherine Wilsden, who cooked up this uh, series with me. Uh, well, you're very welcome, Katrina. Uh, nice to have you. Um, uh, we were wondering before, when we were putting together the list of writers, if you would qualify, because um, you are on the very young end of our Gen X. <laughs> but I think from uh, rereading eggshells today, I think your cultural references do um, give you at least an understanding of the Irish Gen X experience. So maybe you could just tell us a bit about uh, where you're from and where you grew up, your, your your childhood, first of all, and then we'll move forward to how you became a writer. Sure. OK, lovely to be here, Barry. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I just scraped down the Generation X. I think there's different criteria, isn't there? Like I was born in 79, but I think that's some sometimes is the cutoff, and then it goes to the eighties. Other definitions of it. Um, so I grew up in Clontarf in Dublin and had a really boringly happy childhood, which I always thought would disqualify me from being a writer. I just I felt there weren't enough challenges early on, um, which are yeah maybe are more character defining. I think if you have more challenges, but uh, I grew up in Clontarf and I had I had. A, half Dublin, half Mayo upbringing, I suppose, which I think defined me. I I don't know in what way in terms of being a writer, but in terms of defining my identity, like I would really identify with Mayo. I have two Mayo parents and mum and dad are teachers, work teachers, they're retired now, but 
so we had long school holidays in which we always went to Balmollet, um, the edge of the world, basically, the, the beautiful peninsula in, in Mayo, which you probably know by you Mayo parents, I know as well. Well, I, I'm very interested in this, um, this side of things, not just because I'm, my parents are from Mayo, I'm one, one of them, a teacher indeed, but because I think it's um, a common experience that um, isn't that documented in a way, um, the, the experience of growing up in Dublin with... Um, what used to be called culture uh, parents and having a kind of divided identity that way. So I'm curious to know because your book is uh, so rooted in not just Dublin, but in mostly North Dublin. Um, what was your sense of uh, Dublin or your relationship to it when you were, when you were growing up In what ways were you a Dubliner or were you not, or what did Dublin seem like? Yeah, well, Dublin, so we had Clontarf was a suburb, obviously it's a lovely, you know, middle-class suburb, but I suppose I grew up very feeling very connected to the city as well. Like it's we grew up. It's about four miles from the city centre, and I know from some of my friends' childhoods, if they grew up in the suburbs, they kind of stuck within that suburb and you know shopped in local shopping centres or hung out at local places or drank in local pubs. But we were very much. I'm talking about friends now and siblings. We'd have gone into town a lot on the bus or, if the, you know, I remember bus strikes too, you'd walk into town. It was, it seemed very, I felt part of the city centre and it was, I suppose, the north side of town. Like you'd meet your friends at Cleary's Clock, um, that's, you know, under the clock and you'd, you'd hang out there. I remember like, say, Jervis Centre opening in the mid-90s when I was a teenager. That was a big deal, that kind of, just that you had a shopping centre in town to hang out in. You felt like it was an American mall, even though it was probably pretty far from it. Um then school, I suppose, I went to the local school in Clontarf, the Holy Faith, and it was an all-girls school. I had I had a fine time. Like, I wasn't a rebel. I, I need to say that. I wasn't cool. I, I feel I should say, because <laughs> I'm a writer, I feel I should have had a, a rebellious upbringing. But I just kind of, I was a swat. Like, I just got on with my schoolwork and... Like, you know, I hated maths. I absolutely hated maths. I was terrible at it. But uh, I liked English. I liked languages. I did French and German. I had some brilliant teachers, uh, made great friends. and was really into running, actually. That was that was my big thing um, in secondary school. And we had a we had a running coach, Enda Fitzpatrick, who was an Olympian himself in, back in his day. And he was he was a maths teacher in the, in the school. And he happened to he, he ran the, the athletics and I ran cross country and track and field and really loved it. And that kind of, I suppose, defined, I think that defined my school days. It was, you know, Wednesdays and Fridays were training in the school. And then I did one day on, uh, in the weekend at home on my own. And that was such a big part of my life for me was like when I was thinking in preparation for this, I was trying to think of my teenage years and running and going to Belmollet were kind of my big things. So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking along the lines of being a writer then. Like that hadn't even crossed my mind. Um, when I was in school, I was aiming to do medicine, which is a whole other field. I was so that's what probably why I was a SWAT. I was aiming to get the points to do medicine and had that down on my CAO form and then lost confidence at um the night before the CAO form was due in. You had you had the change of mind option. I'm not sure if that's there now. And changed my mind and put down clinical speech therapy um as my first option. So kind of I just I had this freak attack and just thought there's no way I can I can have the confidence to be a doctor to be in charge of people's lives 
Um, so yeah, like even though I loved English and loved writing, especially the creative part of, of English where you were writing stories from scratch, I loved it but didn't see it as something that I could do. And what about if you, um, Belmullet, do you think, when you think now as a writer, when you think back on what formative experiences you had that um, I suppose gave you a deepened sense of the world, was were the summers in Belmullet important? I mean, the, the countryside is almost absent in eggshells, but um, there is something in the atmosphere of your prose that makes me wonder if uh, something got into your head then in these um, lovely summers in the countryside beside the sea. Yeah, yeah, like it's true. Eggshells is a very, very much a Dublin novel. And that was, I think that spoke to, of its time when I was writing it and was kind of stuck wandering the same streets in Dublin. But it's hard to define where the sense of identity with Mayo would come out. It, it's probably in language. Like it's probably, it's stuff I wouldn't recognise, a turn of phrase or, you know, if, especially if you have two parents from Mayo, you grow up, grow up speaking or hearing a, a dialect that it's not obviously true blue dub. It's it's different, but I couldn't define it because I'm too close to it. So, yeah. and I would love to write. Like I, I, I really wanted to write a Mayo novel, but it would require kind of immersion. And at the moment, of a couple of young kids, it's it's not it's not the time to do it. But I'd have to write it as a blow in. Like I still can't claim a rural upbringing. You know, it's very much a, a half and half. And then. Mayo to my Mayo cousins, we were the Jackines, and to you know to Dublin friends, I was a bogger. So you're you're kind of split between the two things. Well, there's just something about the way the city is viewed by the um, the protagonist in eggshells that is both inside and outsider at the same time. I suppose um, that there is a kind of a wonderment at small things like the clock in Eason's and. Um, uh, passing interactions with people on the streets, with bus drivers and the like, that makes me, um, that it, it, I guess one gets the feeling of somebody who's inside and outside the city at the same time. So, um, but we go back to maybe the, back to, back to your CV as it were. So um, clinical speech therapy, that was the next, that was, that was the next part of the story. What yeah. happened there? So I did, I did my leave in 97 and did clinical speech therapy then in Trinity. And at the time, Trinity was the only place in the Republic where you could do speech therapy. Um, so I had never actually been to Trinity. Like, it's bizarre. I grew up in Dublin, but I'd never gone in through the gates of, of Trinity until I went uh, till, till I went to college in 97. Um, it, it, do you know, it was like a lot like school. There was, I think it was 26 in our class. 25 were girls <laughs> and one mature student, the poor fella, who was very <laughs> out of depth with all the hormones. But um, it was so like school because you were quite regimented too. It was very nine to five with an hour for lunch. And you kind of had assignments. You were kind of on this treadmill that was so different to when I went back to do English a few years later. It was much, your time was very structured. Um, the girls were from very similar backgrounds to me. I think there was said there was wasn't many people going to fee-paying schools or anything this was it was a vocation course so we were there to learn how to be speech therapists and I mean it was brilliant in many ways we had a fantastic social life we did all the, the traffic light balls and the Romeo and Juliet balls I don't know if you remember them those kind of the really typical kind of student nights and the one pound a pint kind of uh, promotional nights and um, 
I made great friends, had a brilliant time. But somewhere in second year, when we started all the clinical placements, it hit me that you can't you can't cure things in the space of a couple of weeks, which sounds ridiculously naive. But I had misunderstood the therapy part of speech therapy and thought I could go in and fix people. And I got frustrated. There was so much paperwork you had to do. You know, you had to write plans for each session you did with a child. And then you'd only spend half an hour, say, with the child. Then you had to write up after it what you did, all these notes. And I found it so, it was just too much for me. And for the tiny, tiny incremental changes you would make in, in, in a patient's life and the public system, there was such a shortage of speech therapists. And I know the irony is I dropped out then, like making it even <laughs> more of a shortage of speech therapists in the country. But it, I, I couldn't give 100%. And it's the kind of a job you need to be all in. So I finished second year did my J1 in, in New York, spent a summer working in New York as a, as a home health and then came back, started third year, I think a couple of weeks in and dropped out um, and then took that year out to work to because at that time we'd free education, like genuine free education, not the kind of free education they're talking about now. But, you know, where it was a 300 quid to, was your registration fee. So because I dropped out, if I was going to go back, I was going to have to pay for two years. So I worked for a year uh, as a care assistant in a nursing home. And then went back to study English in 2000, I think it was. And that was a whole other world. I was not prepared for, for that. I was 21 now at this stage. And like I loved English. I want to say that. It was a huge privilege to basically read books and write about them for four years. But... The students were dauntingly wealthy, confident, confident people. And not all of them, but there was a core contingent of phenomenally wealthy people, as I saw it. Just, you know, a lot of students didn't have to work in the summer. They just, their parents paid for their apartments in Dublin and they read ahead or whatever, whatever they did. And that was a culture shock. It was fascinating to see. Um, there was... So I was 21 going in and had left school, you know, three years before. And the, even the, the kind of fee-paying Dublin school thing was a world apart to me that I didn't know of. And I went in and I remember the first day people come up to you and ask, what school did you go to? I was thinking, hang on, we're, we're adults. Why, why are you asking about school? But it was to kind of to place you. And I was really baffled by it. it and people would openly, you know, fellas and girls would openly walk walk away when, when I said oh just the local school you know you wouldn't know it and people seemed to be they were placing people or identifying them and and I remember one lad who went to a fee-paying school explaining to me well the Mount Anvil girls are this and the high school boys are that and the Gonzaga boys or whatever it was it was this other language that seemed so parochial too to be still banging on about school as adults um, and then there were the British really posh students which I know Paul Murray has talked about which that was another level of well you know Eton and these schools I had actually heard of they were so so culturally uh, important in Britain. So then um, after you finished the degree in English you went um, off globetrotting is that? Yeah so I finished English and was always wanted to go traveling after went to Japan taught English there for a year and then travelled around Asia for almost another year. Came back to Dublin in 2006. Um, 
the height of the Celtic Tiger. The height of it, yeah. Yeah, and that was, yeah, again, another land. I hadn't noticed the Celtic Tiger when I was in college because, you know, you don't have money then. But I remember coming back and friends now were working and just had that bit more cash and thinking, wow, like, well, Irish people seem to move so fast. That really stuck with me. Just, I suppose, coming dust around Asia for, <laughs> for a year at this very slow pace. Irish people were fast moving. There was fast talking. There were clutching coffee cups. That was a that had happened to my. That's my memory too, Katrina. Yeah, because <laughs> in those years I was living in a small American college town, and when I came back, that was my feeling too. People racing around with and coffee cups everywhere. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Was, and until memory. then, like coffee for me was something you sat down and met someone for, and you had a treat of a coffee. And now people were racing to work holding these takeaway coffee cups. So become I mean, it becomes normal very quickly, but. And what were you thinking in your own mind then about what you wanted to do with yourself? When you came I hadn't a clue. I, I I hadn't thought this through at all. I was just coming back. I, was, I went back to live at home with, with my family, which was great. I wasn't paying rent or anything, which was um, so you could kind of take your time then. And I this is it seems so old fashioned now, but I remember the Irish Independent, the actual paper copy had jobs. And I found just happened across a job for abstract writer in this publishing company, H.W. Wilson. And applied for that, did a writing test and got the job. And I worked there for the next four and a half years. So that was reading magazine articles and writing summaries of them. And it was heaven. Like it was, you know, I mean, it was like being back in English as well. You were reading things like Aviation Week and Space Technology or Business Week or Oprah Magazine or, you know, New Yorker, New Yorker Review of Books, this massive range of magazines. So I, it, it was good training for reading quickly and writing quickly because you had to, we had to do 23 abstracts a day. And then a couple of years later, when the recession hit, they started layoffs. They laid off most of our department and the ones left had to then double our output literally overnight to, to 46 abstracts a day, which was you 10 minutes to read an article and write a summary of it. Um, so great training, but... Yeah. Well, I was going to say your sentences are very short and very clear. Um, so I, I wonder if um, that could be it. Yeah. Be. And then, so then, becoming a writer was literally an accident. You were telling me. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Um, so while I was working as an abstract writer, I was running all the time, and I had kind of up to running marathons, and was really enjoying the marathon running, but wanted a new challenge, and started training for an ultra marathon. There's a, a Comrade South um, Ultramarathon in South Africa is 56 miles and that was my goal and I had to do a marathon to qualify for that did a marathon in Valencia with my brother and banjax my knee tore the meniscus in it got surgery and it didn't work out anyway basically there was running running had ended for me and that was actually devastating and there was a real grief after that because it was it was such a passion for me. It was it was took up a lot of my life. And so I kind of went into a sulk for a while, as you do, and then thought, OK, what else? What else can I do? I need to get passionate about something else and did a writing course. And that was an evening creative writing course after work with uh, Greg Baxter, an American writer. And that was brilliant for me. I had it forced me to just take criticism to, to submit a short story. I'd never written a short story before to actually write something, submit it for feedback, not be precious about the criticism. Um, it was really, it was a brilliant course. It was over over a year with three kind of 10 week stints. And I learned a lot from that. Um, so that kind of, that got me into the thoughts of writing. Again, I hadn't thought about 
like I didn't think myself I could publish if that makes sense I I, I thought I'll do this thing it's another hobby for me and then 2011 my company shut down got laid off and this is obviously a recession there's not many jobs available and I had just finished my writing course and I thought okay I'll try and submit short stories try and submit essays to journals or competitions try and do that and was having no luck was job hunting with no joy either and thought feck it I need something to delay rejection inevitable I felt rejection I thought I'll write I'll write a novel and just started wandering around the streets of Dublin back in 2011 2012 and kind of noted things in notebook conversations with bus drivers or graffiti I noticed and I think at the start I thought this was going to be an essay I wanted to talk about some something to do with Dublin like street signs with letters missing things I was observing and then I couldn't find an angle and I felt the facts weren't interesting enough so I started trying to imagine why are the letters missing of the street signs and just yeah the voice of Vivian then came from that this kind of misfit not belonging just wandering around on her own. So she's a protagonist unlike unlike any other um, and so she's a very, um, not just that she's very unusual, but she's a very particular flavor of unusual that the reader feels very viscerally because we're plunged right into her worldview. And in fact, we have to really work hard to try and construct what the you know, real world is um, outside, what's what's you know, really going on, because we're so inside. I'm very curious to know where she came from. And I, I was, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking of a few things. Um, one was that your your whatever led you to study um, speech and language therapy made me think that you have an interest in um, people whose relationship to um, language and social interactions or you know, kind of the social world in general um, is unusual in some way or um, considered to be um, partial or um, or different. I wonder was that part of it. Um, um, or your own experience, and you mentioned this to me before when we, when we chatted off off air um, about uh, of being unemployed and um, negative equity and all that. So, uh, anything you can think of about where this extraordinary character came from? Yeah, well, I hadn't thought at all about the speech therapy angle. Um, I, I suppose I went into speech therapy thinking it was kind of partially medical, which I love. Like I, I love hospitals. I have a weird graph <laughs> for hospitals. I don't know where that comes from. And, <laughs> and linguistics as well, like would interest me, you know, the building blocks of language or dialect. Um, so, yeah, maybe an obsession with language would feed into Vivian. Yeah, definitely the not belonging in a recession or feeling kind of, yeah, feeling isolated. Because even though it was a recession, like the vast majority of my friends had kept their jobs and were going, you know, to work at eight o'clock in the morning and doing their thing. And I just remember the first morning after being laid off, waking up and going, oh, God, what next? Like, and, and at this point, yeah, we had bought a house again, 2007, <laughs> a month off the peak housing prices. And then everything had crashed, negative equity and you've no job. And just this sense of, oh, God, and really feeling I didn't fit in or, you know, especially the people I worked with in Wilson's, I really got on with. They were great friends. And then suddenly to not have this structured environment and like that would come later, even on maternity leaves, having had kids that this kind of, wow, you have to build yourself up again and make yourself part of something. Um, I think that was where the not belonging came from. And just I took that to extreme. Like I wasn't feeling exactly what Vivian was feeling, obviously, but just I kind of went with that 
trying to see the world differently. And then I was looking at Dublin a little bit negatively too at the time, and I wanted to make it a bit more magical for myself. Well, she has a kind of wonderment uh, about the, the, mm. the city around her. And she's somebody who is kind of structurally disconnected from society, from the world, but who then builds a whole series of other connections um, like um, she she wants to drop lemons on Lemon Street um, or um, she wants to eat and be surrounded by only things that are blue or she kind of builds up systems of her of, 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 of her own. So there is yeah. there's a figure of the artist in there somewhere, too. And she like, she wrote notes, random bizarre notes in, in books and put them into charity shops. And that's something I used to do just bizarrely, even before Vivian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just I, I love I love the idea of never knowing who would get this book and read it and go, what the hell? Like, so, yeah. Ah, so you really did that. Is yeah, that the, that's a great scene. Uh, <laughs> and she puts fivers in the pockets. As well. I did that. Actually, I went into Guinea's and uh, the kind of, yeah, the kind of cardigan that you felt older women would buy. I put fivers in the pockets there. So I hope I hope somebody found it and kept it and didn't hand it back. So this capacity you have of seeing um, the world from, I suppose, the outside or the wings, that's also in something that comes up in um, your day job, the day job you do now. So you are you are doubly um, a Trinity person from your studies, but in fact, you're triply a Trinity person because you work <laughs> there now. Yeah. So I work there as a cleaner. I started that in 2015. Um, after I was laid off, I did a few short term kind of projects and, and jobs but then 2015 I had I had worked as a cleaner in Trinity in the summers when I was studying there and I stayed friends with some of the women and during the recession Trinity weren't hiring in housekeeping and then some of the cleaners told me you know they're, they're hiring again I went back in yeah just a few months before my novel came out and I've been there since so that's six years now and I really love it like it, it works so well with with, with the writing job um it's early mornings I'm finished by half nine it just works like it's not I, I wouldn't do it obviously if I won the lotto but it's it's physical work which helps me like I don't want I don't want another writing job um and I don't want like a lot of writers would do the hustle of looking for you know doing reviews and journalism and I admire them hugely because that's work to me trying to find work or create work or you know you're not you don't have a every week you don't know what's coming in but I know I get my weekly wage and it's a good basis I can earn a bit of money on top with the writing but you know my mortgage and bills are paid basically by the cleaning job so that's yeah but I mean you've really seen all sides of Trinity so you started you saw the um the science end with um all the girls and the one fella in um <laughs> uh, in, in in speech and language therapy then you saw English with the um, Hooray Henry's from Eton. And, <laughs> and, um, what do you see now that you didn't see before that other people um, don't see? What, what is there? Because, I mean, your book is so much about looking in, you know, what's going on in the wings of reality, I suppose, behind the backstage in a way. And what do, yeah. you, what do you see, not just about Trinity, I mean, but about the world? Is there anything you see in your job cleaning that... Um, um, well, I suppose literally, like you would see things that aren't open, you know, in the normal hours when students are there. So, say if you're cleaning, do you know the long room where the Book of Kells is, the library and the Book of Kells? Like, those doors aren't open. So, if you go there, you're going into the arts block. I don't know if you know it by the tunnels. You're going down 
into these tunnels and up this clanky old lift. And then suddenly you're in this dark long room with these marble busts looking at you. Like, that's an amazing thing. If you're the only person in that building, it's really special. Like, so some of the cleaners I know don't want to work there because they're completely spooked, but I loved it. Yeah. And when I started, I was nine months working at a spare, which is covering for other cleaners who are sick or on holidays. And you got to see so much of the place. And these kind of so secret doors or cubbies where cleaners keep their their accoutrements, like those things you kind of you don't notice as a student. And I suppose the people too, like if you're if you're a cleaner, the people who you're dealing with are the maintenance guys, security guards, the attendants. These are people you mightn't necessarily notice as a student. Um, I suppose too, what I find very interesting is seeing a double side to people. That some people who are in Trinity might come across as very um, liberal, I suppose, and tolerant. And and in theory, they probably are, but they mightn't always be nice to the actual cleaner. Um, that, that has been interesting. And there's a real kind of, I suppose, a whisper network among the cleaners. There's a real kind of camaraderie where if you're starting in a new place, the other cleaners will tell you, this guy's an awful idiot or be careful of her or whatever it is. And sometimes, you, you know, you might look at the name on a professor's door and you think, wow, I've, I've heard of them, but they're not the nicest to the cleaner. Now, I have, yeah. I'm going to add a disclaimer, though. Most are lovely. Most I'm are. sure they are. I'm sure they are. And I won't ask you any names, but um, <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it a surprise who is um, who behaves in a decent way to the cleaning staff and who doesn't? Sometimes it is. I, I will say most are lovely. And I, I, what I love about coming in early, if, if you've lecturers coming in early themselves, you build up a great relationship with them. And, you do know, you know, you get to know about each other's families. It's, it's a proper colleague kind of arrangement. Um, and the students, too, like I... You know, like with everything, there's good and bad students. There's, there's, there's students who come in very early in the morning because I think of high Dublin rents, that they are commuting from, you know, Monagar and Tullamore. They're, they're coming in on early commuter buses and they're sitting around and they're doing their kind of whatever assignments before they go into class. That's a tough gig. Like, yes, yeah. you know, back when we were in college, rent was actually affordable. And so you see good and bad. Like there's, I, I do remember one incident when I was heavily pregnant with my second child and I was cleaning a lecture room and not all students are loving like like everyone but I was the, the lecture theatre has steps and I was kind of cleaning desks coming down and toppled <laughs> toppled out a couple of steps and I was fine but I, I got up and kind of looked over to the two lads who were talking assuming they'd you know maybe ask how I was and they kind of looked at me and the look they gave me was the help is intruding on our conversation. Like they just kind of <laughs> stared at me. And I, I, I remember saying kind of sarcastically, don't worry, lads, I'm all right. And they just stared at me and went back to their conversation. <laughs> it was utterly bizarre. Now, that's not representative, but it just, wow. Like, see, I, but that fascinates me. It didn't actually upset me. It fascinates me how the machinations in your head you have to do to treat another human like they're just something beneath you. I find fascinating. But you're great to laugh at it. Um, you know, I think not... not I might have been laughing, laughing at the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I see that in eggshells as well, that, you know, the, the, we, we are watching the, the different way in which people respond to Vivian in the world. And um, there are, you know, there are two types of people, you know, people who, um, who are able to make the imaginative leap um, into somebody who's not in their... Um, in their world or who's an inconvenience to them and those who aren't, I suppose. 
Uh, but it, you know, it is a book that people really respond to. I mean, it's hard not to respond to it. It just goes um, so deeply into your head when you read it. Um, but you also had, when, especially when you won, not just the Rooney Prize, but what's the other name of the other prize? Um, um, the Lannan uh, Fellowship. That's right, the Lannan Fellowship. Um, you also had um, response from cleaners who uh, were happy about your success. Do you want to tell yeah. us? Yeah. So, well, firstly, when I won the Rooney, it was just it was amazing to be able to tell the cleaners I worked with and to invite them to the. There was a night in the Provost House in Trinity, which I had cleaned before, and some of the women who clean his house were there as well, and that was lovely to kind of to have they came and were waited on and got served food and drink when they were usually cleaning it. Um, there was amazing support from from my colleagues. And, and I remember one woman just saying, one of us won a prize. And she was really, I felt like, wow, I'm kind of accepted into this group. It was amazing. Um, the the Lannan was, I think, I felt a bit uncomfortable in some ways. With, with the, when I, oh, when I won the Rooney, actually, that the, it went, it went further afield, like that the media publicity, because I'm a cleaner, and I felt I had to explain that I was very lucky that I had opportunities. You know, I, I'd gotten to go to college, that this was a choice, that I was making the job as part of my life. And the Washington Post took it up and ran with it. And I, some people got the impression that I was working, that I was a single parent and working as a cleaner. And that that's not true. I have an amazing partner who is, you know, more than does his fair share. And I was getting messages, emails from cleaners in Mexico who were also single mothers and, or, well, sorry, not like <laughs> who thought I was also a single mother. And I felt bad. I felt like I had to, I, I thanked them when I emailed back and thanked them for their good wishes. But I felt like these women had so few opportunities compared to what I had. And, you know, it, it just felt a bit, uh, I don't know, I felt misrepresented or I had gotten the wrong end of the stick out there. I mean, you're very, you know, scrupulous to, to think about that, but I, you know, it is. I'm sure it's um, it's it, it's it's a real gift that you gave them as well to um, see, because you know, the truth is, you are doing the cleaning. Um, you know, mm. you had all these opportunities and things, but you are. I mean, you are mopping and scrubbing like they are in the mornings, and and then. So actually, how does that work? So you. Um, what time do you hang up your your um, your rubber gloves and at nine thirty? Nine thirty, and then yeah. you go home so, and open. Then the... yeah, so pre-COVID, I would have gone to gone to the National Library to write or gone to a cafe to write, but then it's it, it's home. At the moment, the Lannan Fellowship, like there was money from that, and that allowed me to take some unpaid leave. So I'm on unpaid leave at the moment, which is amazing, and I'm just to try and get this final edit of the second novel done. Um, but half nine, I finished. Which is great. Like I, I'm watching people going to work, and I'm I'm finished my day. Like the getting up early is hard. Like I, I I'm not a morning person naturally, so it's it's a fight every morning, but it's worth it. So then your writing hours are between kind of half nine and lunchtime. That sort of that's yeah. Right. Now I, I've my two kids are in are in crash, and that buys me writing time too, which is great. Um, so then I, I pick them up in the early evening, and then it's mammy time until bedtime. I mean that's a very full day. That's um, a, yeah. a varied one. It, it, the, the variety for me really works. I like. I I love just. I love having a physical job and then sitting because when you're if you're moving around a lot, you look forward to actually sitting down, as opposed to if, if I was doing another writing job and then writing. I think that's really tough to to keep motivated. 
I mean, there is a lot, and then we'll, we'll move to your new book now, but there, there is a, a, quite a lot of descriptions of uh, forms of domestic work in eggshells too. There, there's one, um, the description of hoovering, I, I know you told me that you started the cleaning after, but um, it's about, the, you said bashing the furniture, I think, it just, it sounded, it just, it was a very vivid depiction of hoovering. And Oh, wow, I hadn't realised that. There's a few of them, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, she, the kind of things, you know, boiling eggshells and all that, but she does is um, strange forms of housework, but seen <laughs> attentiveness to it. Yeah, and in my second book, actually, I had, I had two characters, and my one character was working as a security guard, and then I changed that to to have him working as a cleaner because I wanted him kind of physically engaged with something as opposed to just, you know, watching, which is what watching. you do if you're security, yeah. yeah. Um, so what's the... Um, what can you tell us about the new book? The new book um, took me seven years, so it's long, long overdue. And uh, it's about two two characters. So Eggshells was this intense intensity of one character inside her head. The second book is two characters, a brother and a sister. The sister is visiting the brother in Hamburg. He has moved over there. He's working as a cleaner in this model railway exhibition, um, the Miniature Wonderland. I don't know if, if you know it or if anyone knows it. I happened to visit a friend in Hamburg a few years back and loved it just visited this this model railway exhibition and it's like eight miles of track there's 200,000 little mini figurines it's this whole magical little exhibition and I got a bit obsessed and went back three times which <laughs> took a load of notes and set my set my novel there um, well uh, you might read a bit uh, if you have something yeah. ready for us and just everybody um uh, I meant to say at the beginning if you want if you have a question for Katrina I know some of you they're coming in already so some of you know but there's a chat function on the side of on the sidebar, so you can type your questions in there. And after the reading, we'll have a, a Q and A. Great. So go, so, go for it. Okay. So this bit is from the perspective of Gert, the sister, and she's she's in a cafe. She's trying to kill time. She's left on her own in Hamburg, and she's reading magazines. I opened one of the magazines that I bought for the trip. The only time I bag, buy magazines, really. Pages of rubbish that they are, telling me that buying this must-have or wearing that signature piece, holding your go-to handbag or wearing your statement skirt would make you stand out from the crowd. But if we all wore what they told us to wear, we'd all look the same. We can't all stand out from the crowd, so we'd all be standing back into the crowd. I skipped the pages to the comparisons between expensive designer versions of clothes to cheaper versions for ordinary women. Problem is, on my wage, even the cheaper versions are out of my budget. Their skinted is my minted, and I don't know where that leaves me. I once calculated the average cost of the nine skirts the style pages of a Saturday newspaper supplement showed. €327. That's what the style writers thought the average woman could spend on a skirt. And the galling thing was, this wasn't even one of the fancier magazines. I flicked to an interview with a female celebrity, who was all bubbles and froth, A one-woman hen party, the kind of person I avoid in real life, but in print, her punctuation was cheering. She seemed to have been born with her finger on the exclamation mark key, which kept me nicely in the shallows. She was talking about her life choices. I don't know why so many celebrities bang on about their life choices, as if where we end up is under our control, as if it all just works out after picking a certain path from a checklist as a teenager. In my experience, You choose a direction, then you spend the rest of your life scraping the worst of the shite off your decisions. I turned to the problem page near the back. 
A woman was asking for advice on how to make love to her husband so that he wouldn't be tempted to stray. The answer was a load of sweet, sick muck about commitment and feeling with lots of eye-gazing. If I was the agony aunt, I'd say, for starters, if you're making love, you're not doing it right. Agony ants in advice columns seem to give advice based on hypothetically perfect lives. They advise the marathly problemed to leave their imperfect unions and live your best life. They say that it's best for both parties in the relationship and for any children involved if the unhappy person leaves a problematic situation and finds first themselves and then somebody else. What utter guff. How many marriages would survive this advice? What about the reality that all relationships go through tough times and maybe sticking at it might be worth it? I moved on to the next magazine. There were endless style tips to take you from desk to dinner or from office to bar. What guff. It sticks in my gullet, this assumption that every woman works in an office. Where are the outfits to take you from nursing home to local pub, from dole queue to house party, from bar to busman's holiday? I feel unspoken to in these magazines and the annual Christmas party dress feature disowns me. It assumes I have glamorous places to go to socialise with similarly sequined and velveted women. I turned to an interview with a celebrity about how she spends her weekends. How is it that in all these day in a life columns, the interviewees seem to spend their Saturday and Sunday mornings practising yoga or Tai Chi before strolling around a farmer's market and then having a leisurely lunch and strolling around an art gallery. How much fucking strolling can you do in one day? Why aren't they tearing around Tesco or racing to get their kids to football matches on time? How is it that these celebrities are so busy having leisurely lunches with friends on restaurant terraces, they don't end up horsing Big Macs and McDonald's, hoping they won't be spotted coming out under the golden arches by the hipster vegan mom squad? And as for their evenings... It seems every celebrity loves nothing better than to cook a simple meal, prepared from their farmer's market hall, of course. Locally sourced, ethically produced, fair trade, low plastic, zero carbon emission, and share it with friends. If they're all so busy hosting all the time, who actually attends their dinners? The world needs guests as much as hosts. There's something so unbearably smug about their lives that I can't help wondering what mass-produced realities lie under the curated perfection. That's it. That's, um, that's fantastic. It's, it's often hilarious, uh, which eggshells often is too. And I can, can hear both similarities and differences in the tone, that there's the kind of the, this, this eye that strips reality back down to its fundamentals and questions them. Um, but there's something slightly different in the tone too. I wonder what's, what's yeah. Your, this this uh, character, she's more she's much more knowing than Vivian. Like she's much more she's more socially aware. She's yeah. angry. Like she she is angry about the, the reality, but she's more kind of carnal or earthy as well. Like she curses. Vivian didn't curse. This woman talks about sex. Vivian is utterly disengaged from her body. So I think that's why this was much more fun to like fun to write as a contrast to Vivian, to someone really aware of the body. Uh, I, we've loads of questions, so I'll start going through them. Um, so uh, one that I got earlier, and I, I actually crossed my mind as well, is in eggshells. This just this setup of um, a person wandering around the city. Um, is there uh, a touch of J- Joyce's Ulysses behind it? Um, 
And I did think you know, she also goes to a graveyard, she goes to a beach, she goes to this, uh, the, the library, the museum. She, she does hit a lot of the, the points in Ulysses. Was that, was that, in, was that in the back of your mind? No, it wasn't deliberate. So I hadn't read Ulysses at this point. I Once people started asking me about it in interviews, I, I went and finally got around to reading it. But I avoided Ulysses in college deliberately. I, I was too daunted by it. I think it, it just happens that, like I knew Ulysses existed, obviously, and there was a Joyce and Bloom were wandering around. And But I think it's just that I live in North Dublin near where, where Leopold Bloom was. You know, I think so we are wandering the same areas. So that part is coincidence. And then I don't drive. So I I live a city at walking pace. I, I'm getting buses or Lewis's and I'm walking. So that's just how I would read a city. Um, right, a walker city. That's how I like myself. Um, that's now we have, um, um, where's it gone? Oh yeah, so Catherine Wilsden. Um, my colleague asks, um, and I was interested in this too, can you talk about your inspiration for the magic, magical elements of eggshells, e.g. the thresholds between worlds? That's true. There's yeah. a lot of that um, of Irish mythology and um, pish rogues and, and that in it. Yeah, I liked the thin places really, I, I really liked the idea of, do you know, like, and I love the bog bodies in the museum that they feature in the book, that these were found in the thin places, these thresholds between kingdoms, and that's where the magic occurs. That's where these other world can open up on, on is it Midsummer's Eve or May Day or whatever it is. Um, I just, I love that idea of the magic within the reality. And it, I mean, it's not like I believe in all this stuff, but I kind of wanted to transplant that. It was mostly rural, these ideas of thin places and and all the fish rugs and the, the fairy tales and the folk tales. I want to transplant, on, transplant that onto Dublin as it is, you know, like the swans and the canals she thinks are, are the children of Lair, but are much more rural. Um, I just like that, trying to contrast this kind of gritty reality of where she does live and have this magical element. It was the idea of the contrast fascinated me. And I wanted myself to see Dublin in a more positive way. I wanted to walk around. And instead of seeing a place that was give, not giving me a job, I wanted to see this kind of magical place and look at only oh, this door could lead somewhere and to try and think, think about things in a different way. And the children of Lear, they spent some time not far from Belmullet. Exactly, think. yeah. Right. Eric, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so Shinjini asks, um, you mentioned at the end of Eggshells, um, oh yes, that's in the interview at the back that I read, that your your second novel is difficult. Is it Was it difficult to write, difficult to read, both, or something else? Um, very difficult to write. And, and when I wrote in the interview at the back of that book, that was a long before I, I got really stuck in it. So... I, I just got lost somewhere in the middle of it. I mean, when I was writing Eggshells, nobody knew, apart from my partner, nobody knew I was writing a novel or trying to write a novel. And there was a lovely freedom in that, that I could just follow it and, and go where it led me. And if it didn't work out, it didn't matter. And I, I had no idea how to write a novel. Now, like, I'm a bit more jaded or cynical or something. And I, I just, I got lost so many times. It's not like I didn't, I didn't spend seven years sitting down and opening the laptop every day and writing it. I would get stuck for a few months and not write. And then, you know, that feeling probably very that where you're dreading going back to your laptop, you're dreading opening the file again. And like, I had a couple of distractions. I had kids, I had appendicitis or broken hand. I, like, I had all these like minor things that happened that distracted me. But long before the kids came, I had got stuck in it. And I don't know, like eggshells, to me, it was magical and it was exciting. Um, 
I don't really know what happened along the way, but it was difficult to write. I hope it's not difficult to read and it's being edited thoroughly at the moment. So it should make it more readable. So uh, Mary is wondering when it's going to be out. In August, August with New Ireland. Yeah. Um, Margaret Keller um, says, it's a a comment. Um, She thought your blog on essential workers and the pandemic was one of the most evocative pieces of uh, epidemic writing. So I didn't see that. Oh, that's nice. I was asked to do it for the for the long room hub in Trinity and to write about the first lockdown last year when we were still we were working. uh, Cleaners were put working kind of three days a week, three longer days so that we didn't mix much with each other. And so I clean in the museum building in Trinity, which you might know is the lovely old building. And I'd be on my own in there for hours. So I was just writing about that and how, you know, you saw all these time changes. The clocks in offices that weren't used were still set to, you know, it was set to winter time. They never changed to summertime. Now they're back to then suddenly for half the year was that the clocks were at the right time and there was nobody in to reset them. Um, just you're cleaning things when there was nobody around. It was so that's that's what Margaret's talking about. So we have a question from Etna who asks if it was difficult to get published. This is uh, Eggshells. Eggshells, I entered the Irish Writers Centre Novel Fair back in 2014 and won a place at that. And so that's how I got my publishing deal. Um, they, the prize for that is that they pick, at the time they picked 12 writers to sit and do kind of speed dating with agents and publishers. And I got an agent out of a pub and a publisher directly from that. So I was lucky. I kind of, that made it a lot quicker than submitting yourself and waiting for publishers to get back to you. So I would really recommend that the Irish Writers Centre Novel Fair, it's it's a brilliant opportunity. Um, and a question from Enda. I think Eggshells is so visual, it would make a fantastic film. Is there a screenplay? It's true that colour is so important in the book, I can, I see what he means. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got, we got funding from Screen Ireland to work on a screenplay. So I'm doing that at the moment too, um, which is, yeah, it, it's fascinating. It's a whole other mm-hmm. experience. And I'm not, I, I'm glad Enda said that was visual because I don't see myself as a visual person. So I'm actually, I'm struggling a little bit with writing the screenplay and thinking cinematically because I don't have that knowledge or expertise of cinema. And I'm desperately trying to kind of play catch up and watch a lot of films to see how it's done. So yeah, it's, it's a steep learning curve at the moment, but it's very exciting. And, so and how, I'm, as I meant to say too, it doesn't mean this is going to be made. We're still at very early developmental stages. So, <laughs> so how you how how do you go about working on that? I mean, are you physically writing the screenplay now? Yeah, or? working with with producers. Um, there's an Irish and American two two producers are working with me. And then when we got we last lockdown actually was tough because I was I was working as a cleaner. The kids were home from crash. So I was trying to mind them during the days. And then write this screenplay at night. We had to submit the first act of a screenplay to Screen Ireland last for last April, at the end of April. And then I was chosen, which was very lucky, got funding for that and working with a screen editor um, with Screen Ireland. So she's kind of giving me feedback like because I haven't a clue what I'm doing. So we haven't even got to dialogue stage yet. We're still on the outline. Like These things take so much time. And, and it's collaborative, which is a whole new thing for me to be you know, I'm used to sitting in a room on my own, doing whatever comes into my head. And now it's working over and back with people, which is really interesting. And all through Zoom. That's very exciting. I'm delighted to hear that that's, um, that, that's happening because I, I agree. There's something um, about the way 
not just colors but actually sounds as well work in it that you could really recreate her her world in a way that would be immersive for the viewer okay Brilliant. And, and I have to peel back her bonkersness a bit. Like I, she's a little bit too out there for, <laughs> for a film, I think. So we have to work on tempering her reactions a bit. Um, so uh, Gary is throwing a, a kind of a curved ball at you here. Um, if you could host a dinner with three or four of your favourite writers, living or dead, who would they be and why? Any favourite writer that you wouldn't invite? Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I... I like Joyce a lot, but I wouldn't invite him. I, there's an arrogance to that man that I, <laughs> I can't hold with. Um, let's see, who would I invite? Oh, this is always a tough question, isn't it? It's, it's like, what are you reading now when you're trying to remember? Um, someone like Dorothy Parker would be amazing because she's so cutting. It's that kind of witty, you, you want witty asides. Oscar Wilde, for that same reason, they could banter among, amongst themselves. Then somebody to get really drunk would be fun to. Let <laughs> who who's the drinkers very name? Um, well, some of the ones you've already mentioned. Yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, Austin would be a good one, actually, wouldn't she? She's yeah, she, she's a, an observer of character. That's who you'd want. Um, let's see, Tony Morrison. I really love her work, but I, I, again, I don't know much about her as a person. So who knows what she'd be like? We'd throw her into the mix. Yeah, because you'd be afraid of being disappointed by the ones you like so much. Although I have a feeling Tony Morrison would have been good, uh, good company. Yeah. Uh, um, um, so there's one more question, which is asking you if the new book explores similar themes um, to eggshells. Um, in, what, in what ways do you think of it as um, a completely new second album with a different um, perspective? Um, and what, in what ways is there continuity, do you think? I suppose the continuity is in the city again. So it's Hamburg, but it, there's still a lot of walking around a city and getting to know it that way. Um, I think there's similarities in outsider characters as well. Like both, the bit I read there from Gert, she's the kind of more accepted in society character, but she still feels not part of it to some extent and is trying to call out bullshit, basically. Um, Roy is her brother and he's very much an outsider character he, he's, he's, he's a bit of a misfit and he was kind of banished to Hamburg for, for uh, slightly dodgy reasons so yeah the, the outsider thing would, would would be there hugely I suppose the, the difference is for me that the dual perspective and that was more fun to write to kind of I do first person narrator for Gert to get inside her head but with Roy I'm doing third person he this, he that, because I wanted a bit of distance from his thinking. We're never fully sure what's in his mind. So that was that was interesting for me to try and get inside each of their heads and, and then pull Roy back a bit to, to make him a bit more obscure. I'm just, um, because you mentioned Hamburg, I'm wondering myself, you said you did French and German in school, um, like a lot of us uh, did. Um, and a, a question that came up, Right at the beginning, I think, when we talked, uh, when I talked to Belinda, was um, the role of Germany in as a not an imaginative place, but as a kind of alternative place for um, Generation X Irish people. Was um, does Germany play as a, just even as an idea uh, a role for you? No, I have to say no to that. I think for me, the Germany link was well. I have a few friends who live in 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 Frankfurt or Hamburg um, or Berlin. 
but it was more that it was the language that really appealed to me. So like I wasn't amazing at German. I found German that the grammar structure quite difficult, but I love those compound nouns, you know, the building blocks where you're piecing together all these nouns that they fascinated me. And I, I wanted to so my male character kind of tinkers with them a bit in his head. And then he's he's obsessed with the idea that if he speaks this right language, that he'll fit into some country that that that's and that if he gets the right collection of nouns together and keeps coming up with new ones. Um, so that, that was the appeal for Germany for me. It wasn't, I think I was looking more to, like I was looking to Asia a lot. I was looking to Japan imaginatively, or like I'd say, I did the J1 in New York. I, like New York for me was a big thing. I, I all, you know, like a lot of Irish people, I have a lot of relatives who went to America and did that whole, had that experience. Europe, not so much for me. Um, I have traveled there, but it hasn't had the same imaginative influence, I suppose. So this is, I think, in a strange way connected. Uh, Catherine, again, is asking um, about Vivian's bonkersness. Um, <laughs> did you consider diagnosing Vivian's eccentricities? Because you were somebody who was going to study medicine and obviously have an interest in that side of things. Did, did, did that, was that part of your thinking? No, no, definitely not. And, and I think that for me was a big surprise when eggshells got published and I started doing interviews and chatting with readers and see to me Vivian she just sees the world differently I don't see her as having a condition or or being in any way you know having a, a, any kind of illness or I just saw her seeing the world differently and it was slightly like how I see it but much more pronounced and I remember going to various book clubs when eggshells came out and some people getting really like almost angry saying, come on, what does she have? Diagnose her. And they came up with, you know, they came up with schizophrenia, autism, like a, a range of disorders or conditions that I hadn't even thought about. And I know if I, if I wrote a character who had a condition, I would obviously research it um, and try and get it right in as much as you can get it is right but no I just saw her as slightly eccentric and seeing the world differently and it really did surprise me how normal most people are that that they saw her as so crazy because I thought she's just that little bit removed from <laughs> from the rest of us that's what I think too that there's something of that in all of us you know she tries to learn small talk like it was a foreign language and she keeps she tries and has these very funny failures like talking about the weather and um that there's something of that in all of us. Uh, that yeah, we are, we're but, all, yeah and I would have thought that, but it turns out a lot of people are very normal and that what they say is what they think. So, yeah, <laughs> that was a learning curve, yeah. Uh, we have to wrap up now, um, Katrina, but thank you so much. Um, the time flew. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. It was lovely and great questions. It was a nice range of them too. Yeah, thank you everybody for the questions, um, indeed. Um, so our next edition is on the 2nd of June, and I will be talking to Mark O'Halloran. So hope to see you, uh, lots of you then. And uh, thanks again, Katrina. Great. Thanks, Barry. See you.